Father, we praise you for your word. And as we've acknowledged, as Mike has mentioned, as we've sung, God, we, we know you as you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And we ask now that as we continue in our time of worship to study this word, God, would you speak through it to our hearts, opening eyes in the sense that we might come to know something potentially that we've not known before or be reminded of that which we already know and are resting on. And God, might this time be one in which you are glorified, you are the object of our affection, our attention. And God, we ask that you would just remove the things that might distract us, or the, the burdens that we might have in the back of our minds, or the expectations and anticipations. God, would you simply allow this time to be one in which we meet with you, as you have promised, where two or three are gathered. God, would you meet with us, we pray now, through your word, by your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2 and verse 15. Galatians 2.15. And in keeping with the apostles' emphasis upon the significance of nuance, allow me to share a story as we begin. Shortly after the wall fell, that's the wall which formerly separated East and West Germany, Melinda's parents, Rick and Nancy, who many of you have met, moved to the city of Weimar. It's the first IMB missionaries, FMB as it was called then, to serve in former East Germany. Melinda remembers arriving in Weimar and the city which had colored the cultural life of Europe for centuries. It's the home of architects and poets and musicians and philosophers. She remembers the city being little more than a, a collection of drab, gray, soot-smothered dwellings, many of which were still inhabited by the some 15,000 Russian soldiers who'd remained in the region after things had changed. And as you can only imagine, this transition was not easy for their family, but certain of the calling that God had put in their hearts, they settled and they began sharing the gospel. And one of the many challenges they faced, and most apparent, was language. Rick and Nancy had already had a number of years of GSL. We're talking about ESL. They'd been taking GSL for a number of years, and so they were well prepared for life in the East. However, it's one thing, as many of you know, to go to class and then just head home. It's a whole different story when you're teaching, preaching, and doing all of your business in the language that you're learning. Now, for Melinda, as for her sister, growing up in Germany meant they'd learned to sprech Deutsch just like they'd learned everything else. And so it just came natural. Not so for mom and dad. And as I'm sure many of you know who've had to learn a foreign language, it takes a great deal of discipline, patience. And it's a journey marked by success, but then also catastrophic failure. Now, I'm sure that both of Melinda's parents had some awesome linguistic flameouts. But it was Rick, the preacher, whose faux pas are best remembered by the family. And with one story in particular that distinguishes itself from the rest, at least in my opinion it does. And the occasion was a Sunday morning. It was one not early in the Dill's German tenure. In fact, by this stage, Rick was actually quite fluent. He was preaching two, three times a week, all in German. And on this Sunday, having made clear man's dilemma before God and as all described in the scriptures, and having related the gracious offer of the gospel to all who would repent and believe, Rick urged those who were present to carefully consider their lives in light of God's truth. And then, should they feel his spirit's conviction in their lives, 
to ignore him. And then without waiting for any reaction, he bowed his head and he was starting to pray when all of a sudden from the back of the sanctuary, one of the elders called out, not, ignore him, not, because in German grammar, negation requires placing the not right at the very end of the sentence. Not so in our English language. And so in this English brain fart moment, Rick had totally omitted the not. Now, one little word, nothing more, some might say, than a nuance, but it humorously changed the entire meaning, but for the elder's intervention. Now, if you've been with us over the past three weeks, this is what we've seen together to be Paul's principal motivation behind this letter to the Galatians. Having come to faith through the apostles' ministry, false brothers had infiltrated the church's ranks, spying on the freedom that they'd found in Christ Jesus, as Paul words it. And they'd been preaching a gospel similar to, but not the same as that of Paul's. And the apostle, having heard about this whole doctrinal debacle, is simply stunned, for there's only one gospel, the one he preached. And, and he didn't get it from a human source. He got it straight from the Savior himself, Jesus Christ. And thus, Paul writes to these dear brothers and sisters, desperate to remind them of the gospel, the gospel which saved them, the gospel he had preached, the only gospel by which men and women may be saved, and therefore a subject of the highest urgency and the utmost importance. And so it's these emphases that we've seen highlighted to this point in this epistle. Paul's calling as an apostle, the gospel's cruciality and consistency with that proclaimed in Jerusalem. Now what we haven't seen explicit yet is the gospel's definition. However, that's all about to change, as you're going to see in the verses that I'm assuming you've read in preparation for this morning. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. So, hopefully you found Galatians 2, verse 15. So I'm invite you to follow along as I read our text for this morning. Galatians 2, beginning in verse 15, where our apostle writes, We who are Jews by birth, and not, in quotes, Gentile sinners... We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does this mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. May God bless the public reading of his word. Church, for Paul, his gospel's truth, and therefore the gospel's truth, is defined as justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. As verse 16 declares, twice a man or a person, if you will, is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And then again, we have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Why? Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now, before we consider this term justification, this big theological word, in order that we might make sure that we understand the same thing 
when we hear it employed, and what we understand be what Paul intended, and by reason of Paul's authority, what God intended. So before we examine the term justification, notice that this understanding is not uniquely Pauline. Not unique to the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle begins in the first person plural, doesn't he? We, as in we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So who's the we here in Paul's letter? And the answer is given to us when we look back to verse 14 here in chapter 2, which we examined, if you were with us, last week, and we find that Paul is describing there his confrontation with who? Peter. So he's the you into whose chest Paul's sticking his finger when he calls him out for his hypocrisy. In Peter's behavior, we see described a Jew by birth, overcoming the law's dietary restrictions and eating with these quote-unquote Gentile sinners. So those non-Jews who weren't privy to God's law and the nutritional boundaries that he'd established to set them apart. However, following the arrival of these so-called troublemakers, Peter, as you recall, had capitulated to their criticism and he'd stepped back into the confines of the law. And Paul, horrified by the message this action conveyed, he couldn't contain himself. And so he confronted Peter to his face, didn't he? That's a pretty, pretty harsh response, don't you think? And for what, at this point, from our cultural perspective? Uh, a difference in opinions regarding snacks? Now, I remember in light of this encounter, I remember as a teenager once asking my parents for permission to participate in, I can't remember now, but some activity that from the outset looked totally innocent. And now I'm sure this in, it wasn't without potential for problems, but others were going, and so in my teenage mind, it wasn't that big of a deal. Now, teenagers, have you ever experienced something along those lines? Maybe you're having one of those right now where what you experience as you've asked parents for such permission is this look that suggests you've lost your mind. And then the words that follow, over my dead body, you're going, right? Now, as older, wiser, only appreciated now on this side of teenage years, but as older, wiser, life-experienced, loving parents, clearly my mom and dad could discern that event for what it really was. And therefore, they flipped out. And church, I think this is what we see here happening. Paul realized that Peter's actions revealed a fundamental error that while appearing innocent, clothed in cultural distinctive, it was so radical as to undermine the gospel in its entirety. Now, as bold and as confrontational as Peter was as a disciple, I don't think that his actions here were the result of intimidation. Meaning, he wasn't physically scared of the guys that had come from Jerusalem and therefore frightened into such gross error. Rather, I believe, I believe that he was afraid maybe, just maybe, he got it all wrong. That the message that these men brought caused him to start really questioning, rethinking his views, and what they said made sense. And so he, he begins to change his actions, his practices, because if you think about it, just logically, if Peter's fears were tied to physical threat, surely Paul, as one man, posed less of a concern. And further, for all we know, the Judaizers, as they were so-called, were still in the area. So it wasn't like following Paul's confrontation that Peter was free from these guys' intimidating presence. And church, here's a point just in light of this interaction for us to consider. But what do we use to determine or to evaluate truth in our lives? Is it how things sound 
Is it the appearance or personality of the speaker? You know, how do we know that what we've believed is in fact the gospel and it's not that which is being proclaimed by the Catholic Church? Because it's so easy, I think, for us to read Paul's words here regarding these troublemakers, these false brothers, and to picture them in our minds as these sinister dudes with slick hair and, and cunning smiles, right? But what if these guys were genuinely nice? They wore brown sports coats, plaid shirts, and jeans. I, what, what if? What if the message they sounded made sense, fit the times, and called for love and acceptance of everyone because how God made them meant that he loved them. And in the end, because he loved them, he could never damn them. So in the end, surely we'll all get to heaven. God bless America. I think... Paul realized Peter's actions reflected error. And he knew that Peter knew it too. Peter knew it too, because this Pauline message was also Petrine, meaning it was tied with the Apostle Peter, the other party constituting the we there. Verse 15, Paul is saying, I believe, that both he and Peter, Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, so those born outside of the law, they both know that a person isn't justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So, Paul and Peter share the same theology, but not only that, they also share the same faith. Because as we look to that sentence, the we, according to Paul, the we had put their faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law. Why? Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So in essence, Paul is calling Peter back to what he already knows. Not to something new. And church, could there be in this act of confrontation a more loving action expressed? To care enough for a fellow Christian that you can't sit silently by while you watch them drift into sin? And tragically for so many today, the actions that we read about here, they're simply outrageous. To do what Paul did is, simply, is unheard of. Because your faith is a personal matter, isn't it? You know, what you believe doesn't fall under the oversight of anyone but you and God. And so in instances as we see here where a brother or a sister begins to err or in a contemporary sense starts to, to stray, to stop coming to worship, to begin evidencing behavior contrary to the scriptures, following the teaching of people whose messages are more inspirational than biblical, displaying ideas inconsistent with the gospel, then we're encouraged to say nothing because that's the loving thing to do. Now, if you knew that a friend had signs of cancer, would you say nothing? If you had a family member who was displaying signs of addiction, would you just mind your own business? Would you ignore evidence of marital failure? Is it loving to simply stay in your lane? And Paul didn't think so because justification couldn't, couldn't come, as he says, from the law. Where justification, this term, refers to one's legal standing before God. Where this legal aspect is directly tied to the law that God gave to his people. So this term, in the original language of the New Testament, it's actually a verb form of the noun for righteousness. And so in essence, to justify is to become righteous. And so justification then refers to one's status of righteousness, to one standing before God, which, as Paul makes clear, is tied exclusively to faith. 
In other words, we aren't made righteous or right with God by obedience. This is the gospel's truth. For if, if we could influence our standing before God through our acts of obedience, then salvation would be contingent on us and our ability, not God's grace. But as we know elsewhere, Paul makes it abundantly clear. It is by grace that we've been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. So justification that complicated word is simply our status of righteousness, and it comes about solely through faith, which the writer of Hebrews defines for us in chapter 11 and verse 1 as being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we don't see. So as a question this morning, in light of what we're seeing, do you have faith in Jesus? Have you trusted Him exclusively for your salvation? Or are you still banking on being good enough? Are you living, so to speak, in the shadow of the law, whereby obedience instills confidence in divine interaction and failure creates concern? Do you feel the gospel's freedom, as described here by Paul, verse 19, being dead to the law? Or do you feel very much alive to the law, evidenced by feelings of worry about how others view you in your Christian journey, worrying about always having to obey the Lord, go to church, always have to pray and worship as if it's an obligation, a burden. Guys, the beauty of the gospel is that we are made righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. It's Paul's definition of the gospel's truth. And then in anticipation of what he knew was coming, he addresses the criticism that the gospel did away with the law in its entirety, thereby making Christ a promoter of sin. So, as a second point for us this morning, and an explanatory one at that, Paul argues that the gospel does not promote sin. The gospel does not promote sin. Verse 17, Paul continues speaking for himself and for Peter as he asks whether after one is justified by faith in Christ and they find themselves doing unlawful things, and here Paul likely has what Peter was doing previously in mind, so that, that which is contrary to the law's culture-defining requirements like eating with Gentiles and other things, does this now make a believer sinful? And by extension, Christ a promoter of sin. And the answer is given us there emphatically, absolutely not, exclamation point. Now what Paul is admitting to here is the fact that the gospel has removed the law, God's law, as a means of justification. So right now we might have some hands go up and say, well, Andrew, you just said that the gospel didn't do away with the law. And that's right, I did. Because the law was never intended to serve as a means of justification. In other words, the law was never meant to save. And Paul makes this abundantly clear later on in this letter, chapter 3, and elsewhere in his epistle to the Roman church, as he explains that the law was given in order that people might know what sin is. This is why it was given. Galatians 3.19, Paul asks, What then? was the purpose of the law. And then he answers, it was added because of transgressions. In essence, without the law, we would have no sense of what was right or wrong, no measure of truth or, or error. Thus, the law isn't bad, but it's holy and good. This is why Christ is the law's end. He's its telos. For in Christ, the law was perfectly fulfilled, making righteousness available to all who would confess their sin and believe in Him. Tragically, as one pastor theologian notes, this way to salvation 
is so uncomplimentary to the human ego since God is having to do everything for us, it's never been very popular. And so what we see here is that the Pharisees, these other Jewish leaders, had hijacked the law. And they turned it on its end so that rather is serving than serving as a guide to obedience performed by God's gracious enabling in the power of his spirit, it now serves as a means of meriting salvation. And so a picture, one that we pointed to earlier with our children might help us here. And I'm, I'm borrowing from one of my favorite theologians who explains it this way. He says, God gave the law originally, in his analogy, as a railroad track to guide Israel's obedience. And the engine that was supposed to pull a person along this track, this track of God's law, was God's grace. It was the, the power of his spirit. And then the coupling between our car and this engine of God's grace was faith. So by this analogy, in the Old Testament, like in the New Testament, salvation was by faith and grace along this track of God's law of obedience or sanctification. Sadly, the Pharisees took this railroad track as we saw it together with our children, rails, ties, nails, all of it, and they simply lifted it up on its end and placed it against the door of heaven and turned it into a ladder to climb. And that's the essence of legalism, making the law into a long list of steps which we use then to demonstrate our moral fitness to attain heaven. Now, while the track's on the ground, some of those ceremonial ties like we described can be pulled out, those rails, and it doesn't impact the law itself. So taking out the dietary restrictions or cultural distinctives can be pulled out. But as a ladder, <laughs> it's a different story. You take a rung out of a ladder and there's now question as to whether or not you can actually get to the next one and get to the top. And this is what Paul was projecting vehemently. The gospel didn't destroy the law. Christ hadn't come to abolish the law. He'd come to fulfill it. Thus it served its purpose, remaining on the ground as a railroad track, so to speak, continuing to guide our obedience, which is faith's natural outworking as attested to by James, who wrote those familiar words, faith without works is what? Dead. And sadly, the moment that the law was turned into a ladder, it became a source of confusion, as evidenced by the criticism of Paul's opponents. And so in light of that reality, a question, what purpose does God's law serve in your life? Do you view biblical law today as antiquated, something for another time and therefore irrelevant to life in the now? Or do you view it as having immense spiritual significance? You might even say it's essential to salvation, which is why you feel so obligated, so burdened to obey it. And if so, what role then does the gospel play in your theology? Is the law a railroad track or is it a ladder? And church, the beauty of the gospel is that it keeps the ladder on the ground as a railroad track. And it keeps our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf and now offers to us his perfect righteousness. Is it yours? And I pray that it is, because the gospel's truth is that justification comes by faith alone through Christ alone. The gospel doesn't promote sin or natural living. Rather, the gospel promotes supernatural living. The gospel promotes a supernatural living. Look back with me now to verse 19 there. Verse 19 there in chapter 2, where Paul writes this. For through the law, 
I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in his gift of the law, God made clear just how broken we are. For not a one of us can keep it. We can't, we can't even come close. You know, the law revealed the fact that we are spiritually dead and that the more energy we expense in obeying it, the further we come from the finish line. In a sense, we could, we could relate the, the law to like a bog or the moor or marsh on our peninsula. The more we strive to free ourselves, the deeper we sink. And it doesn't matter how hard we fight or the approach that we take, the greater the exercise of our minds or our emotions or our bodies to the end of earning God's favor, the further we simply drive him from us. And thus Paul writes here that it's through the law that he died to the law. In other words, through the law, God opened Paul's eyes to being spiritually dead and to the beauty of Christ's offer of life. And so for you this morning, have you recognized your spiritual dilemma? That you are dead to God and without hope that you can earn what he has offered. You can't earn it. You can't earn what your heart desires most of all. Because God made you for himself and you can't rest in him unless you are exactly like him. And the law, God's rules, his mandates or his, his commandments, whatever you want to call them, demonstrate your inability to be as God is perfect. So friends, have you this morning accepted your spiritual dilemma? And if you have, would you cry out to the only one who can help? Because Paul describes the results of such an appeal there as being crucified with Christ. Where I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. Which I take to mean that in admitting your helplessness and appealing for God's grace in salvation, you die or you are crucified to yourself, meaning that your life's formally, your life, which formally would have been defined as existence, where you were the ultimate beneficiary, whether whether you acknowledged it or not, your life has gone the way of the dinosaur. It's now extinct. And I believe that Paul uses this reference here to crucifixion for two very powerful reasons. The first is the obvious connection to Christ's atoning death, which he accomplished on our behalf when he was crucified, which is an act so brutal that we can barely comprehend it, but which I believe demonstrates the horror of our sin. In church, so often we, we view sin and we talk about sin as something so tame, like white lie-like, and an in, in innocent, almost humorous undermining of God's will that after a good laugh we can just brush aside. At its worst, we find ourselves embarrassed by sin, blushing, because we've been called out, our blemishes, which we've tried so desperately to cover as we've come to church around, surrounded by others who are holy, we've, we've now they're on full display. But in time, because we're comparing people, we convince ourselves, well, I'm no worse than the next guy. And so we quickly get over the moment because somebody's other person's faults now likely are in the spotlight. But church, that's not the picture that we're given here of sin's nature as communicated by crucifixion. The most horrific form of execution ever devised. Crucifixion, I believe, displays the grotesque, hellish pungency of sin. It couldn't be washed away. It couldn't be removed by a slap on the hand or even a word of rebuke 
Our sin required an excruciating, hence the term, bloodletting, life-draining death. And in our cry for help, we are made participants in Christ's crucifixion. It's a reference that reveals sin's ugliness. And, I believe, the self-death's agony. The self-death's agony. And it's, it's no small thing, friends, to die to yourself. To give up your will, ways, and wants. And submit yourself to those of another. This doesn't appeal to the ego at any level. Which is why I believe Jesus said that such an act is impossible to self-will. In other words, to choose to take up a cross and follow Christ is impossible, humanly speaking. But, with God, all things are possible. And so this morning, have you been crucified with Christ? And if you have, then you know exactly what Paul is talking about here. You felt the profound sense of unworthiness to which God has brought you, the realization that you were a sinner and you weren't good by any definition of the term. You know the desperation experienced as you hit the ceiling in your efforts to make things right, to find satisfaction, to feel as if you had a purpose for life that was unchanging. And you know the liberation and the relief that then washed over you when Christ set you free. That's conversion. Church, that's the moment when Christ comes and lives inside you. Have you been crucified with Christ? And if you have, then no, you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. And the life you live, you live by faith, meaning you don't live now in obedience to God's law to earn His favor, but rather because you have His favor. You, you live in love to honor and glorify the God who saved you by seeking to be as holy as He is holy. How, you ask? By striving to keep all of his commands. Because you know them that you know that in them he has revealed to you what pleases him and what displeases him. And as you go about living, you do so in victory. Why? Because Christ has overcome all enemies. Now, does this mean that when we come to Jesus, we no longer face the troubles and trials of life? <laughs> You'd be a fool to think so. Absolutely not! Exclamation point. Life in this world is a battle. As we know from those in our church family who in this last week have experienced the warfare that is life lived in a sin-marred world. Our enemy still prowls like a roaring lion, so described, seeking to destroy us. Satan, our adversary, doesn't want us to obey God. And he lives to oppose us and our king. So we're in a battle. But we don't live each day fighting for victory. Rather, we live each day fighting in victory because Christ, who defeated death in the grave, loves us and he lives in us. So, do you have this victory in your life today? Are you living by faith? Or have you fallen, as did the Galatians, into the trap of works? So subtle. Are you seeking to please God now by a display of your personal strength, the, the ability that you possess to resist sin and to obey God's commands in and of yourselves? Or are you living by faith in Christ's victory, looking to Him for strength in everything as you face the temptations of every day, admitting that your ongoing dependency for grace is great, rejecting the lies that the level of your obedience determines the depth of God's love? Are you living by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave Himself for you? Friends, in 
I pray that you are. I pray that you are and that you won't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then as Paul concludes, Christ died for nothing. If you're here this morning and these things are new to you or you aren't sure, then as we stand in a moment and sing a song that speaks to the hope that we have in Christ and Christ alone, and I stand down front, I would love for you to come and talk to me. Or if there's a, a commitment that God has laid on your heart in weeks past where you feel as if it's time for me to stand before my church family and declare that I am walking in victory with Christ. I have been crucified with my Savior. And I want the world to know so they can pray for me, be encouraged alongside of me. Then I'm going to be down front and I would love to speak to you. But before we, pray, we sing, would you pray with me? God, you are gracious. You are good. And we can't save ourselves. Father, and this may seem defeatist to some, it might sound ludicrous to others. But God, the beauty of the gospel is that were it to be logical and something comprehensible that ultimately we in our minds could conceive and receive, it would be us who saved us. But God, what we find is a beautiful gospel that is, is made clear. It's, it's foolishness to the wise, so-called in our world. And yet you've opened the eyes of children. Father, would you open eyes today? Would you open hearts eyes to the reality of sin? Father, and I would imagine that we all can attest to the dissatisfaction of life lived in our own strength. Even in moments where things seem fine and we have all our needs met and much in our storehouses, God, there's still a niggle a sense of dissatisfaction. There's got to be more. And we can find things to distract us. But Father, in those moments of quiet, when it's just us, and we're honest, it just doesn't seem to make much sense. It's because you made us for yourself. You save us by yourself, by grace, through faith. Lord, would you, I pray today, glorify yourself. Thank you. Thank you for the gospel that we each need, that we each stand in, God, and are strengthened, empowered by. Lord, and might we, as we sing, in Christ alone, our hope is found. May our hope be found in Christ and Him only. And we pray these things in His name. Amen. Let's stand to sing our song of commitment.